grateful for taking the time to pray with us. Today we're going to talk about poverty, uh, but I have some caveats for you. One of them is our goal is not to make you feel guilty. Now, the Holy Spirit may have a different goal. That's between you and him. Okay? Uh, But that's not my goal. (laughs) Another one is we're going to have a lot of verses read today. A whole lot. Far more than normal. Because I want you to see, just kind of inundate you with, saturate you with the Bible. We're going to go all over the Bible in a variety of places. So just sit back and listen and follow along, okay? This is, uh, depending on who you talk to, this is the second or third most talked about topic in the scriptures. So there's literally thousands of verses I could choose. So I just picked only 200. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Not quite that many. But there will be quite a few along the way. Just to give you a glimpse of the the breadth of this uh, situation. We are going to talk about poverty. Poverty is one of those places where I believe we are most divided. It's one of those key places where politically we're divided. Uh, All you have to do is listen to the political pundits. Uh, the candidates, and they all have their own scheme for what's going to solve the problem. And so, once again, remember what we're doing here. We're learning to think with integrity. I'm not going to tell you how to vote, okay? I just hope you all vote the right way. A few of you got it. Okay, good. So we need to wake you up today. Nope, not going to tell you how to vote. I'm just going to encourage you when the time comes, vote your conscience. That's what I care about. What we're most interested in is how do we have the discussion Okay, that's really it. The goal isn't to get you to change what you're doing. I have, I'll just say right up front, I find you to be a very generous church. I am grateful. When I get into this conversation, you're going to hear me say this more than once. I am grateful for the people in our church that have capacity. I have several that just come up regularly and say, let me help you. Let me help our church. What does our church need? And so I love people that God has blessed with wealth. I said uh, before, and I'll say it again, I don't think wealth is ever the issue. Don't ever feel guilty for being wealthy. Feel guilty for being greedy. Because wealth is a statement of the Lord's blessing. That's how I understand the scriptures. We're going to look into it a little bit. So we're going to get into some some of the discussion points today on on what's going on with the, uh, poverty and where does it come from and all that. Remember, the goal is not to make you feel guilty. The goal is to help you think through with integrity this issue, a very, very big issue in our culture, so you know how to have the conversation. And I encourage you to have the conversation with your friends and neighbors, your relatives, the two things we should never talk about. Politics and religion, those are the things we should be talking about because they're the things that matter to us. What people want, what they don't want is a lecture. What they do want is a discussion. And I have found that consistently to be true up here in this county especially. I can be anywhere and have a conversation. And so learn how to have the conversation with people. It doesn't matter how opposed they are or how militant, just find out. I teach, uh, I teach classes in the doctoral program at Denver Seminary with young pastors. And I tell them, in my opinion, the two greatest characteristics of a good pastor, curiosity and patience. Curiosity and patience. Find out why people think the way they do. Find out why they believe. Find out what values are. Find out what's important to them and why they think what they're thinking. Excuse me. Just ask the questions. And pretty soon you have great conversations with people that you might otherwise be on the other side of the fence from. 
And it's okay. We don't always have to agree if we can converse. That having the conversation in a healthy way really is the beginning point for us to impact our county. So let me just start with some facts. In 2018, there were 38 million Americans who lived below the poverty level. 38 million. That's 11.8%. Okay? Uh, our poverty typically ranges, our poverty level from 8 to 14% in that range since we started recording 100 years ago, whatever it is. And so uh, right now, in, uh, last year, 2018, we're sitting at 11.8%. Since 2000, the global poverty rate has cut in half. Okay? That should cause you to smile. Since 2008... I mean, since 2000, the global poverty rate is cut in half. And yet in 2015, 10% of the world's population still live on, lived on $1.90 per day. That's the level of extreme poverty, 10%. I know some of those people with my travels overseas to third world countries every year. I know some of them. Since 1990, this reflects a reduction of 36% compared to what the number, what it was in 1990. Since 1990, 1.1 billion fewer people are living at that extreme poverty level. In other words, this is good news. This is really good news. And yet there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go. Many of us here are fairly immune to this, not because we don't care. It's just not part of our world. We don't live here. If you're in Summit County, chances are you're not in this group anywhere. Um, and yet we have people that are hurting and poor right here. I've said many times, this is a beautiful county. Don't be deceived. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. Sat with a couple this week. I have no idea how their marriage has lasted as long as it has. Nancy went with me. She doesn't do that very often. She was invited. And we got done. And we walked out. And she just hugged me and said, Is this what you do throughout the week? Now I know why you're tired sometimes. And so don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Every kind of sin you can think of is present in our county. People at the seminary ask me, how's your church? Great. We've got every sin, kind of sin you can think of. Right here. Broken marriages, drug addiction, Jews, all of those things. This is an important discussion to have because as we continue through the series, we are going to move in more sensitive areas. Pretty soon we are going to talk about the Me Too movement. One of the things that Mark encouraged me to do before he left, one of the last things, we had a long conversation. Many of you were not here in 2012 when I came up as a guest preacher. And I raised the question of rape, Deuteronomy 21, Deuteronomy 22, and uh, asked about how that represented a redemptive God. Not knowing that I was going to be a pastor here, so I thought, ah, I've got nothing to lose. <laughs> I love the way God laughs. And here I am. And Mark said, I need to repeat that, and I need to come back and address that. And um, so we're going to do that, coming up here. So I'm just giving you fair warning. You can look at the uh, website, um, and there, we're dealing with some sensitive topics coming up. And you get to decide if you want your children 
here or not. That's your call. It's not mine. But if the Bible addresses it, we need to be honest about it. We need to be honest about it. I can speak firsthand about sexual abuse. And I'll tell you more about that on that Sunday. But what I do know for sure is that several of you have a story similar to mine. And it's important that we have the conversations in all these areas. Learning to think with integrity. That's really what we're trying to do. Learning how to have the discussion. So where do we start? Well, remember where we, the very beginning, we said we're not going to organize these discussions around causes. There's a cause for everything. Just look at the bumper stickers. There's a cause for everything. That's not a healthy way to have the discussion because a, because a cause naturally divides. Because this is what's important to me, and if that's not important to you, then typically we're, we're divided a little bit. So what we did is we reoriented the discussion around two key areas, and I don't want you to forget them. One is dignity, and the other is human flourishing. Dignity. Every one of us has dignity. Every single person. It doesn't matter how opposed they are, how militant they are, they're worth your love. They're worth your time to sit and discuss with them and help them. Because our people, in my experience, our people here are pretty, they're pretty divided, they're pretty uptight, but they don't know what to do with it. They really don't. They're frightened. Just read the papers for three or four days straight. I mean, go to Google and read the headlines three or four days straight. It's hard. It's hard not to be distressed when you have different political candidates all arguing economically around the spectrum of what we should be doing as a country. In other words, no one really knows. And so people are nervous. People are frightened. And that's one of the ways we can be a gift to the people around us is by having the conversation and being curious and being patient and showing them that I've had more than one person say, well, you're really not. You're really not all agitated about this. No, I'm not. How come? Well, first of all, I'm a Christian. I believe in the one true living God. And they're like, really? How does that help? Because <laughs> they typically think of God like this, right? And I have the opportunity to turn that around. and say, oh, no, no, that's not who God is at all. So dignity is very important. We start there. Every person is worth having the conversation with. But human flourishing is a vital part. This is what we're created for. We're created to experience joy at the deepest levels. And what sin does, honestly, is it robs us of the joy. That's its biggest, biggest issue. It robs us of joy and therefore life. People that go down that road to sin, somewhere down the road, they get awful tired. Talk to a drug addict, talk to an alcoholic, and they're tired. They're tired. Talk to people that have been in three or four marriages, they're often tired. Somewhere the dream has faded. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. And I've said repeatedly, and I'm grateful for those of you that have come and reminded me of this over coffee. You don't have to stay where you are. You don't have to stay where you are. It doesn't, honestly, it doesn't matter to me what sin you're stuck in. It doesn't matter. Except as a pastor, I want to know how this has impacted you and robbed you of joy and worn you out. You don't have to stay where you are. That's the great news about Christianity. It's called transformation, redemption. God rescues you out of the pit. So don't stay where you are. We are designed for joy. We're created for joy. 
And that's God's goal for us. And human flourishing is when we began to act as a church in a way that generates that type of love and support and care. You see, we get to make this church whatever we want it to be. We do. If we want this church to be like that, we can easily turn it like that. If we want this church to be like this, we can make it that way. The elders can tell me we want to have a loving church. It's not a thing I can do about that. I can be loving, but you have to be loving as well. And you have to learn how to be patient. I sat with somebody earlier this week that was struggling so deeply with sin from a long, long time ago. I said, read John 5.24. If you believe in the one who sent me, you have passed from death to life and you will no longer be judged. So why would I judge you? Jesus said, don't judge. It's real simple, Matthew 17. I mean, Matthew 7. It's real simple, don't judge. Why would I do it? I instead want to know, what's the impact of that? As a pastor, how can I help you move to a much better place? So human flourishing is what will win the world over. When we flourish together and we experience health, then you know what? Joy comes. And I already know you people. You're going to go tell your friends. I know how it works because I'm meeting your friends as you bring them in. Because they don't have to stay where they are either. So that's the beginning point of this discussion. Okay. Last week we said that language plays an important role. Failure to accurately define things usually leads to oppression. And I used the example of with work last week of uh, a mom who's taking care of the household chores. Is that work? And every hand went up, except for one. Uh, that was John Flanders. No, I'm just kidding, John. <laughs> okay, every hand went up. Well, then why do we degrade that? Why do we look down on that with, with a lower value somehow? That's just as much work or more, I would argue, than what a CEO does. And so language is important. So one of the most talked about things in the scripture is wealth, poverty, and stewardship of God's resources. This is everywhere. The Bible most often defines poor or discusses it this way. It refers to those who find themselves on the margins of society. Unable to take advantage of everything that the rest of us take advantage of. So they find themselves on the margins of society because of their economic situation. If we are not careful, our policies do that very thing. What we try to do to help the poor often hurts the poor. Now, you may not agree with what I'm about to tell you. That's okay. Um, I was teaching at my church before this one, a Sunday school class. And I said... um, uh, we were talking through this very concept. They just asked me questions. And I said, well, give, me, say, give us some examples. Well, I said, I have several. Education is one of those. Now, I happened to be in a classroom where I had about 50 or 75 public school teachers. Okay. I didn't even get the words out of my mouth that, that sometimes the way we, we regulate education hurts the poor. And um, I got lynched. They had the rope out ready to string me up because they're all certified school teachers. I said, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Let me let me defend myself. Let me just ask one question. 
If money wasn't the issue, would you send your child to an inner city school or Harvard? And the room got real quiet. So you just proved my point. What happens if we're not careful is that we restrict the choices of the poor to one option. That's something the wealth never have a problem with. They always have multiple options. Always. When we lived in Germany, I went to the doctor. And I walked in, signed signed in, and there were 75 people all in there coughing. Go have a seat. You have to wait your turn. So I went and sat down. As I was going to sit down, the uh, doctor, they called my name. I turned right around, I went to the front, I went right to the head of the line. Well, that's interesting. So I asked, some of you have heard me tell this story. So I asked the doctor, I said, how did I get in front of all these people? And he said, "Uh, you have private insurance. They don't. He said, this is our social health care program that we have in Germany. And he said, they all have to wait their turn, but you don't have to. And I said, explain to me what that means. I don't even know what that means. And he said, well, under federal law, they each get 15 minutes with me. So we time it. When they walk in, I 15 minutes. What happens if you can't diagnose them in 15 minutes? And he said, they either have to go to the hospital or go home. What happens at 5 o'clock when you're done? He said, we said, sorry, come back tomorrow. But he said, you, I can spend all day. You have private insurance. So in the eyes of that particular system, I was one of the wealthy ones. And look how it benefited me. Okay, Now, I'm not trying to make an argument for or against socialism or any of that. I'll let you figure that out. I'm just telling you the experience I had. There's an example where the people that couldn't afford what I have, where their choices were limited down to one. And I had many choices. And so think about how the Bible defines it. Because if we're not careful... Boy, we find ourselves trapped. That's why we want to help you think with integrity. The Bible, most often when discussing the poor, refers to those who find themselves on the margins of society because of their economic situation. This leaves them open to exploitation. It does. Within the prophets, every prophet talked about this. Every single one. Why did God send the prophets? Because Israel wasn't doing what they were supposed to do. That's the reason. And this is the one topic that they all hammered the northern and southern kingdoms on right here. Within the prophets, poverty is most often shown to be the result of the rich taking advantage of the poor. Here's an example in Amos. Hear this, you who the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, now I love Amos because Amos is not afraid to just tell you what he thinks. There's nothing nice about his words. It is harsh. It's a hammer. It's a fist right to the face. That's Amos. I just love it. You should read it and see what he calls the women. Okay, so here's what the rich are saying. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? This is a holiday. Everybody took a day off. Great. Let's get back to work. We got money to make. Okay. I need to exploit you. I own all this and I need to exploit you to make money. So when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat the Lord has sworn by himself 
the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything that those wealthy have done. Never. Thousands of verses in there say something very similar to this. Why is this so important to God? Well, if you remember, no passage in Scripture other than this. Deuteronomy 15 is the passage that addresses what God's designed for a culture is and how to treat the poor. Deuteronomy 15. And it was designed to make sure that Israel looked very different than the surrounding nations. That's what it was supposed to do. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land of the Lord is giving you to possess as your inheritance, as your inheritance, he's giving it to you. Okay, He will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. Okay, There need be no rich, I mean no poor among you. There doesn't have to be. These words are alarming in 2nd millennial BC. These are alarming words, startling words that the ancient Near East never could figure out. The nations, they had poor people all over the place. The wealthy controlled everything, and the poor got nothing. And all of a sudden, we have this language right here. There need be no poor among you. And yet, Deuteronomy recognized that poverty does exist in Deuteronomy fifteen eleven, There will always be poor people in the land. Okay? There will always be poor people. In the land. Now, remember, when I talk about, um, when I say to you that wealth is a statement of the Lord's blessing, don't ever feel guilty for being wealthy feel guilty for being greedy. Look at Ecclesiastes. When the Lord gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. Okay? So Paul, in the, in the pastoral epistles, he talks a lot in the Corinthian epistles. At one side, he says, enjoy what God has given you. Rejoice. Be grateful. But then on the other side, be generous. So now we've created that tension between great gratitude and generosity. And so here's how I define it. Okay? When you look at all that God has given you, and everybody's in a different spot. By the way, I can't define when you're wealthy, and I can't define when you're greedy. I have no idea. That's between you and the Lord. When you look at all that God has given you, what's your natural tendency? This is mine. I got to protect it. That's called greed. Or is it, this is mine. Look how God has blessed us. Let's see if we can bless others. That's generosity. So enjoy, Paul says, enjoy what God has given you, but be generous with it. Okay? Hold it loosely because it's not yours. That's why we call it stewardship. Nothing you have is yours. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's why all the parables on stewards, the language of stewards, the New Testament is rich with this language. It's rich. So greed is a statement of the heart. So Israel, Israel is unique among the nations in that God desired that poverty would never become a permanent feature of the nation. So look at these two passages in Deuteronomy 15, back there. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns 
of the land the Lord your God has given you. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Don't be tight-fisted toward the poor. And if you go on to Deuteronomy 15.11, we read the first part of this a minute ago, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So this is unique language. This gives us a glimpse of God's design for his community. You see, the wealthy are to care for the poor, not exploit them. Now pause just for a moment. What happens if we take all of the wealth and distribute it evenly so everybody is in the same spot? What happens? We don't need each other. Diversity is a term that's used politically in a negative way. I want to use it in a positive way. Diversity means we are different from each other. We have different spiritual gifts. We have different genders. We have different experiences. We have different economic positions. All for the purpose of generating a flourishing community. And if everybody's the same, then we don't need each other. Nowhere in scriptures do we find that. Except with dignity. We all share equally in dignity. That's why I say if you're wealthy, don't feel greedy. I mean, don't feel guilty. Be generous. I love those of you in the congregation that will walk up to me from time to time and say, what does the church need? How can I bless the church? Let me write a big check. It just makes it possible for us to stay where we are, keep blessing people. I love the people that walk up and write checks to our benevolence. That's what we did Christmas Eve, by the way. You guys keep our church so financially healthy every Christmas Eve now. We turn that that donation strictly into helping the benevolence fund, which works with poor people. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. I love the people that write big checks to cover that, to help us out, so that the rest of you who can't do that can live a peaceful life and a good life. And uh, that's, the, that's what God has intended for a flourishing community. So Deuteronomy goes a little bit further, though, provides a structure, uh, especially for those who are successful, those Israelites who are successful. It's a guide, if you will, on how to deal with the poor. Uh, the Israelites, for example, who had paid off their debts were not simply let go. They were to be given a gift. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years. In the seventh year, you must let them go free. Release them of their debts. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. They were to be given a gift that enabled them to have a fresh start. What would our country be like if this was what we practiced? Amazing. These are all right out of God's mouth. His command for what Israel was to be like. Can you see how different they were than the surrounding nations? 
It also reminded the nation of God's generous generosity when he freed them from slavery. You see, the intent of Deuteronomy was to break the cycle of poverty that was so prevalent among the ancient nations. It wasn't to make everybody equal. That was never the goal. It was to create unity, a flourishing community. It was to make sure we moved into each other's lives to help each other. You see, that's the message of Philippians, by the way, I think. If you have a need, and I know I can help it, and I choose not to, and you know I can help it, and I don't, we've got issues relationally. But you have a need, and I say, let me help you with that. We don't have to talk about Thanksgiving. It's a natural byproduct. Generous, I mean, Thanksgiving erupts when we care for each other. When we step each other's lives and say, let me help you. That's a natural byproduct. It's Thanksgiving. And then it gets replicated. So the whole intent of Deuteronomy was to break the cycle of poverty. And yet as Israel moved away from the Lord, poverty increased. Poverty increased. All the prophets talked about it. Those to the northern kingdom as well as those to the southern kingdom. And guess what they defined the underlying cause as? Greed. Greed. So I'm going to run you through several verses. Jeremiah 5. Wealth leads to a lack of justice. Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds. And like those who set traps to catch people. These are called the wicked. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They've become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They don't seek justice. They do not promote those of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. No, they don't, do they? You see, wealth leads to a lack of justice. Ezekiel, wealth, power leads to violence and oppression. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have gone far enough, princes of Israel. Don't go any further. Give up your violence and oppression and do what is just and right. Stop dispossessing my people. Stop kicking them out of their homes. Stop doing that, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are to use accurate scales, an accurate ephah, and an accurate bath. Habakkuk, unjust gain leads to abuse. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house. That's good to remember. That's what greed does. Shames you, not others. Forfeiting your very life. Malachi, defrauding others leads to abuse. So I will come to you to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I'm coming to put you on trial, he says. Wow, these are harsh words. The point is clear. Neglect and oppression of the poor are grave, grave Grave wrongdoings. James goes so far as to say, this is true religion to care for widows and orphans. When you boil it down, you want to know what religion is all about? Oh, we do all the things here that make us religious. But at the very core, 
if we're not caring for the poor, then it means nothing. It means nothing. With this one step further, verbs, they reveal that more than wrong oppression of the poor, when we oppress the poor, we now have created an enemy. God. Proverbs 14 reveals contempt. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 14, 6. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the Lord, but the Lord is their refuge. He will take up the cause of the poor. In other words, if you don't. Psalm 72. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from the earth. He will rescue them from oppression and violence. Why? For their blood is precious in his sight. He always watches out for the ones who can't protect themselves. Psalm 140. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. These are just a sampling of the verses. You see, when we choose not to care for the poor, if that is our, as a nation, that means we're really in trouble. We're fighting against the wrong enemy. One of the defining traits of the gospel, let's turn back now again to what Christianity is all about. One of the defining traits is that it's good news for the poor. We hear it at Barbary, Luke 4, Jesus, when he stood up at Nazareth and read, The year of the Lord's favor signified a change in Israel's fortune. It was initiated by God. That was good news for the poor. That's legislated in Leviticus 25. Every 50 years, liberty was proclaimed. Everybody got to return the land that they that they had sold because they got in trouble. If they were slaves, they were let go. Given their, Every 50 years, the nation recalibrated. That's what happened. And so Jesus said, I have come to deliver that. This is the favorable year of the Lord. It's that time. That's what the cross was all about. That's good news for the poor. When John asked in Matthew 11 if Jesus was the Messiah, he replied, you decide for yourself. The news is, good news is proclaimed to the poor, the gospel. They are the ones who benefit. You see, what we learn throughout Scripture and throughout history of the world is that the good news, the converts in any nation almost always come from the oppressed. By far, the biggest turning point, those who turn, are those who are hurting. I was in southern India teaching, and they explained to me, I was, asked, I was kind of curious why the Christian community was so tight-knit. And he said, well, at least in that part, <clears throat> they figured out, the government, that in the caste system, those who turn to Christianity are in the bottom caste. Now, the caste system there controls jobs. It's on your birth certificate. They show me their birth certificates. They can tell what caste they are in. And they can only get jobs in their caste. <clears throat> the higher you go in the caste system, the more wealth you have. And this is where you find more educated people up here, doctors, lawyers, engineers, and down here in the bottom caste, uh, you don't find that. So what the government did was uh, they, every, <coughs> when a person came to Christ, they had so many days to report it, and they changed their birth certificate. They moved them up here. So they immediately didn't have the education or the resources, so they were committed to destitute poverty when they converted to Christianity. Because you can't be an engineer. The government would call their employer and say they're no longer in this caste, so they're fired from their jobs. Okay? It's kind of a reverse way of 
discrimination, if you will. And so the Christian community there and in Nepal is so tight. They take care of each other until they can learn what to do. That, um, when Jesus said to John, just look at my ministry. The poor have the good news preached to them. That was all he needed to know. He knew he was talking to the Messiah. You see, God's first love in Scripture is for the poor. It's not for the rich. His first love is for the poor. The rich person who refuses to help the poor in Scripture is always portrayed as a thief. Why? Because nothing you have belongs to you. That's why. So God sees the rich who refuse to help the poor as thievery. James 2. Look what happens in James 2. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? See, there it is. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of which of him to whom you belong? Then again, James 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth. Now there it is. There it is. It's mine. That's called greed. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Taking care only of yourself. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing to you. Remember, these are the people that the poor are the easiest to exploit. If you're greedy, that means you're exploiting the very people that God wants to bless through you. Okay, what does all this mean? Some of you know I'm reading Miroslav Wolf. These are some of his thoughts, and I really like them. Economic policy has to go beyond missing income. It also has to address marginalization and dignity. It has to. We can't be satisfied with economic policy that only helps people get more money. Because we have to return dignity. That's what God made us for. We talked about that last week. We are made to work. And so as we have our discussions, how do we do that? If you want more advice on this, go talk to Jude. She and the Benevolence Committee deal with this issue every week, every single week, on how to help people, not simply to help, but to return dignity at the same time. That's a big part of their discussions. The conversation must incorporate how we are to love and care for the poor. It's simply not enough to give. And by the way, I'm grateful. Keep giving. Okay, give to the benevolence fund if that's where your heart is. But our discussions as we get in with our friends and neighbors has to incorporate more than that. How do we help people restore that level of dignity? Politics must move beyond the question of welfare or government aid and move into the realm of justice. It has to. It's simply not enough. 
to argue that <clears throat> whether it's government welfare, whether it's aid, whether it's transfer of wealth, whatever your particular political dream is, okay, capitalism, socialism, I'm going to leave that up to you. I'm not going to make that argument here. Whatever it is, it has to include justice, not simply wealth. It has to move beyond that. That's what we are here for. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to leave you with this. When is enough enough? I'm not going to answer that question for you. That's your question with the Holy Spirit. When has God given you enough? I would encourage you every year to ask that question and to set that threshold. Enjoy with gratitude what God has given you. That's what he tells us to do. But then he encourages us to be very generous. The one who sows sparingly will weep sparingly. The one who sows generously will reap generously. When is enough enough? Just a dollar more? They said, I sat with a financial planner many years ago and said, this is how much money we should save every year for retirement so our kids won't be indebted. That means everything above that is excess. Let's give it away. When is enough enough? Each of you needs to address that and discuss it. Discuss it in your marriages. Discuss it with your friends. Your answers are all going to be different, by the way. God doesn't answer that question. He lets you do that because that's a product of the heart. When is enough enough? Learn learn to be grateful and say, God, thank you for what you have loaned me so that I can give it to others and be a blessing. Now, how did I start? The goal is not to make you feel guilty. I find you to be very generous. I love being part of this church. Father, thank you for your goodness, your graciousness, your generosity which takes care of us. We are so very grateful. We know you to be a good God, and we know you to be a God who cares for us. And we desire to be that type of church, not only to care for the poor in our own county, but to have the discussions with people to help minimize that fear, that terror that's going on because of everything they hear from all the whole political machine. Help us to have the confidence with patience and curiosity to love them well, and to continue to be a blessing to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. Like I say every Sunday, thanks for being generous. You are.